Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein, and my guest this week is Tim Wu, author of the awesome new book, The Attention Merchants. He is also the the father of the term net neutrality. I don't want to bio too much on him because I talk a little bit about his biography in the beginning of the show, so you'll hear who he is, but he is genuinely one of the most interesting human beings with one of the most varied careers I have ever met and and just a, a really brilliant guy. In this episode, we talk a lot about his path, his time clerking on the Supreme Court, his work as work as a, as a lawyer, his work as a writer. We also talk a lot about his ideas. His previous book, The Master Switch, is a, is a favorite of mine. And I would wanted to talk with him about monopolies and antitrust in the modern American economy because this is something that is becoming really central to a certain part of the left. It is something that is objectively rising, at least in certain industries. And he's a really good guide for thinking about these issues in a, in a clear way. So we talk about that. We talk about the development of advertising as a medium. We talk about the ways in which both advertising and modern sort of attention and informational platforms are making us more distracted, making it harder to think about things. Talk about his best advice, which I found really interesting, uh, his favorite books, of course. This was a great discussion, and, and he's a good person to listen to. It's been a, a tendency with him that whatever he's thinking about now, everybody else will be talking about in five years. So, so it's worth listening to him closely. As always, thank you for listening to the show. If you are enjoying it, please share it, put it on Facebook, put it on email, on Twitter, tell a friend. That is how we grow. I'm very, very grateful for those of you who, who do that. Check out my other podcast, The Weeds, where Matt Iglesias, Sarah Cliff, and I talk policy. And continue to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with your feedback, your questions, your guest ideas. I listen to these. I read these emails. And a lot of the guests on this show come out of these emails. So thank you for being here. And without further ado, here's Tim. Tim Wu, man. It's good to see you. Well, I guess I'm not seeing you, but it's good to hear your voice through headphones. Sure. Likewise. <laughs> so I've been excited about this conversation for a long time, in part because you are a bit of a mystery to me. I'm going to read off a partial list of things that I just know you have done. You were a biochemistry major in college. You yeah. went to Harvard Law School. You clerked mm-hmm. for the Supreme Court. You won a travel mm-hmm. writing award. You did a Two of day <laughs> Two of them, I'm sorry. You did a 10-day meditation <laughs> retreat. You ran for lieutenant governor of New York. You were the father of the term net neutrality. Uh, you've written a couple books that I really love. So I guess my question is, I know you don't usually drink beer, but when you do, do you, do you drink Dosa Key? 
<laughs> well, usually I like martinis, actually, as you might know. But <laughs> so, so tell me a bit um, about this. Pat. And lately, I don't understand this. You know, I guess it betrays a certain desire to experience a lot of things that I'm interested in. I mean, I guess I, in college, I was really in, in high school, loved science, loved politics, liked adventure. And so I just kind of went where it took me and tried not to think too hard about inconsistencies. <laughs> one thing, one thing I idea, one idea I had is if you don't care about inconsistency, you can be extremely free. I mean, that's sometimes a bad thing, but especially in your own career, if you're like not too fixated on your identity, you can do a lot more stuff. Define inconsistency there. What do you mean if you're not fixated well, on inconsistency, you can be more free? You know, if you think, well, I'm a scientist, therefore, if I do law, I better do you know, patent law or something like that. See, it's a nice, consistent narrative. And I've done some science-related stuff. I'm just saying that, you know, some stuff I've done is completely not linear, and it just jumps around. So I guess that's that's the theme. What is <laughs> your that? skill set? That's a good question. Uh, I think translation. So I was uh, born to... A Taiwanese father and a British mother, both of whom were immigrants and scientists. And so I've never fully 100% had membership in anything, although I've maybe completely also been a member of a lot of things, you know, Taiwanese society, North America, England, and my British relatives. I grew up in Canada, but I was born in America. I'm a scientist, sort of, but I'm also an attorney. I've dabbled in economics. I'm in academia. I've done some journalism. You know, I have all this kind of partial membership. And so I, if I have any added uh, skill set, it's translating from one to another. Maybe trying to make really obvious what I think is really obvious, clear. <laughs> Maybe that's another thing. Other than that, I don't work that hard, so I don't have that. That's what I've got. I don't really believe that you don't work that hard. I think people who say that are either being falsely modest when they're doing the kinds of things you're doing or a lot of the things you do, you don't code as work because you enjoy them. That's possible. But I, yeah, but I don't think I'm a grinder. I haven't maybe, in fact, sometimes I wish I had more endurance. Sometimes I get worn out, more of a, a sprinter. But I, I do try to be efficient. I mean, part of why I wrote this book was The Attention Merchants was concern about losing the ability to focus on stuff getting sucked into vortexes of, you know, so I, I think I'm pretty good at when I need to having absolute focus and getting things done very quickly. Whether that's hard working or not, I'm not sure. I think Arianna Huffington said it, but she didn't invent the idea that I think sleep is my secret weapon. It would be um, impressive if Arianna had invented the idea of sleep. No, but she has publicized the idea that sleeping eight hours a day might make you more effective. I mean, that seems kind of obvious, but she's done a good job. Well, I think a lot of high efficiency people or high productivity people think, you know, if they sleep six hours and they have the extra two hours. But, um, you know, for me, it depends on the work you're doing. If you're doing writing or something that takes heavy concentration, uh, low sleep does not work well for that. So tell me a bit about how you went from being a science major to deciding to go to law school. What was the path there? You know, I wish it was reflective of a greater vision. I mean, I was in my early 20s. I had always thought I'd be a scientist because my parents were scientists, and I went into the lab, and I'm sorry to say that I was something of a failure. I uh, actually broke a high-speed centrifuge. I just was bad with my hands. I'm sort of absent-minded. 
I um, threw away samples. I'd be like digging through the garbage. Once I had thought I'd contaminate the entire laboratory with radioactivity, it was uh, so like something out of, um, you know, Spider-Man, <laughs> the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of the writing was on the wall. I, I did a paper sort of like, and it was really bad. And I remember presenting it to people and I could tell like, oh, this is not good. So I, I wasn't good at that. And someone I knew was applying to law school and I didn't know any lawyers, but I liked politics and always sort of like policy and felt I was a little more social than some of the other scientists. So I just kind of went for it. I can't say it reflects any deep vision. It more reflects failing at one thing and trying plan B. And what did you like about law school? How did it fit you in ways that the sciences didn't? First of all, no lab work. <laughs> the experiments didn't have to work. You just <laughs> had to uh, be able to analyze the systems and understand them. And frankly, I found it a little more like science than I'd expected. Contract law reminded me of chemistry, for example. Just like under what conditions do you have a reaction slash a contract? The federal court system reminded me a little of some of the very complex systems in the human body that are like the immune system that have all these interacting port parts. And so I found I was kind of a natural fit. It had a lot of the theory and structural analysis that science has, but not the experimental work, which I was so bad at. And so it kind of was a natural fit. Did you early on glom on to sort of information and media law, or is that something that came later? Oh, no. You know, gosh, if I could take back all the things in my early 20s, they're so embarrassing. So I thought it would be really cool to be an international lawyer. And I don't think I had a very good idea of what that was, other than you got to fly business class <laughs> for some reason. For when I was in my early 20s, a job that let you fly business class like that was, that was it. You know, that was, there was nothing possibly better than that. So I actually spent my first summer, my second summer, working for a large law firm in their sort of international transactions practice. And they did fly me to Hong Kong. It was business class. I thought, this is it. I got my career figured out. But then there was the work. <laughs> and the work was terrible. It wasn't that no one could do it. It was just particularly unsuited to me. It was a kind of work that sounded great. They said, oh, we're doing this project finance deal to build a giant energy plant in central China, and it's got all this involvement. But that is how it sounded. The actual work was essentially like a giant loan application, and you were doing all the paperwork. <laughs> and it required skills that were really not mine, like keeping track of you know, hundreds of little documents. And I was like, this is not going to work. And so I, I did like litigation. I tried that a little later. But yeah, I found that international lawyer wasn't for me. And then along came the day I met Larry Lessig and that changed everything. I think the follow-up question is, is obvious then. Tell me about the magical <laughs> day you met Larry Lessig and everything changed. Well, Larry, um, you know, he's a professor. He was on a young uh, visiting professor at Harvard very charismatic, and he was like different than everyone else. He was very unstodgy. He talked in kind of wild terms, and he was crazy about this thing called cyberspace. And he said... And what year are we in? Be... Just situate me in time. Oh, sorry. So we're, we're in 1996 or 1997. 
And it's a winter term, a special course. And it's Larry Lessig, Law of Cyberspace. And I was like, what is this? So I took it. Every member of the class had to create a virtual identity and inhabit an online world, which then called a mud or a mush, a mutually shared hallucination or something like that. And we lived in this world and it was awesome. And then he was so smart and cutting and interesting. And he like said things like, okay, what if you had a virus that went around the world and detected all the you know, child pornographers and pedophiles out there and scanned everybody, but only caught the bad guys. How'd you feel about that? You know, and he saw everything coming. He was like, what if we had totally personalized worlds where you only saw the news you wanted to see? And what if Amazon knew what you, they didn't have Amazon yet. What if companies knew what you liked and then recommended products based on what you liked? Is that awesome? Or is that the, you know, the worst thing you could imagine? So we're debating all these questions, which now occupy us. You know, how do we know the news is going to be real or false when you have a million news sites? All these questions that are our reality. You know, Larry Lessig had them all in 1996, 97. And we were talking about them, and my mind was blown forever. And I was like, this is it. So I didn't mention this, but I'd also been a computer programmer. And so I had kind of was handy with all the online worlds, and all this stuff made sense to me. And I was like, this is it. It was a big change. He he really changed my life. And are, are you two still close today? Sure. I mean, I don't seem as much as uh, I used to. He also, uh, he delivered uh, a topic for me to, to spend my life on. He uh, one day asked me if I was interested in clerking. That's how I ended up on the Supreme Court, ultimately. And uh, he also found me my wife. <laughs> sounds absurd, but he set me up... That sounds very old world. I should say that another of the people who he sort of adopted as a research assistant, much later, uh, later I married, Kate Judge, and uh, he had this way, he sort of saw, oh, you know, there's something about this person, something interesting, and then he would sort of get behind them and push their careers in this extraordinary way. And so I was kind of an ordinary floundering student at Harvard Law School. I was kind of lonely there. And um, Larry was like, no. He didn't quite say you were the chosen one, but he was like, you have a destiny. <laughs> you are going to go into this field and change it. So I kind of did. What do you think he saw in you? I don't know. You know, this is funny, but he said that in some ways I reminded him of Richard Posner, his uh, the famous judge. He said this once. I found it really surprising. And I guess by that he meant that I w- maybe would just say what I thought, so that's not that uncommon. But maybe I I kind of think some things are right there and obvious to everyone and they should be said, and maybe that's what he saw. Whatever he saw, the other professors didn't necessarily see. I mean, I had good grades and everything, but it's very easy to get lost at that school. So, yeah, that's a hard question to answer. (laughs) You've brought up twice now that one of your attributes is that you see things that you think should be obvious to people and they're not. Give me a couple examples of things over the years that are something that it hit you as, well, of course, this is the way the world is, and it's taking you some time to convince others. Well, maybe net neutrality is a good starting point. I guess net neutrality came out of hanging out in Silicon Valley. And I was there and I was looking at the plans for what cable industry wanted to do with the internet. 
And, you know, it was like, oh, you know, we can control it. We'll block the sites we don't want and speed up some and slow it. And I was like, this is not going to be good. And um, at the time, I think people said, well, you know, maybe they'll make a better product or so on or so forth. I just felt like very clearly that that one was not going to be a great thing for the future of the internet. So there was one. Let me think of what else. Okay, so when I ran for election with Zephyr Teachout, I think both of us could see that the Cuomo governancy and the people around it were kind of corrupt. And, you know, lo and behold, half of them have been indicted now. And sometimes it's as obvious as that. It's like, looks like these guys are on the take. Now, we didn't obviously have evidence, but there was something that was like, yeah, we kind of saw that. You know, New York politics, it sort of seems obvious a lot of people look like they're on the take. And then when, in fact, they're investigated, it turns out to be true. So I guess those are, I don't know, the best examples, but those are ones that come to mind. What was your experience like clerking for Breyer? It was one of the best years of my life. I love the mixture, I guess, of law and politics. So... Of course, there were cases that were more routine legal cases, but there were also cases that were really close, political in a sense that they had enormous political consequences. And it was just fun, I think, to watch the court try to figure out inside that little bottle, closed off the world, where they were going to go with it. Breyer was, uh, in those times, often trying to convince Sandra Day O'Connor of things. She was the middle of the court. And he had a way of doing that, that he would suggest to her and her clerks that, you know, the more adult course would be to do X as opposed to what Scalia and Thomas were doing, which was essentially juvenile, ridiculous in some way or another, and would throw the country into turmoil. And I just like that situation. We also had a, you know, little group of clerks. It was 30 of us, played basketball every day. We had a lot of adventures uh, you know, we were, you know, young and single in, in the town of D.C. with a good job. And it was uh, it was a great time in my life. I loved it. Tell me a couple of things about the court that, that you learned working there, that people who sit on the outside and, and see this institution from afar might not believe. Let me say a few things. So the first is that it's far more grandiose and beautiful on the inside than it is on the outside. I used to think it was the difference between a palace and a playhouse, that there were rooms and libraries and basketball courts and chambers that were kind of extraordinary that nobody sees other than the justices, some clerks and, and the staff. So that was one thing that people don't know. In terms of its functioning, you know, a lot has been written about the Supreme Court. I'm trying to think of what people on the outside wouldn't already know. Do you buy it? The What's that? I, I'm going to ask this question, actually, as opposed to, to sure. dancing around it. I struggle with whether I buy it, whether I just buy into the Supreme Court. And, and I mean it in this way. Uh -huh. There is a discourse uh, around the court as this deeply deliberative and unpredictable and apolitical institution. Where, mm. you know, any case can have any outcome based on how good the arguments are. 
And then, you know, I read some of the political science around the court and, and I watch the things that, that I pay attention to. And I'm talking here more about the sort of big politically charged cases. And the outcomes tend to be pretty political. They, you know, these people, I see them around D.C. They exist in circles that are, you know, Antonin Scalia, the late Antonin Scalia, gave his great interview to New York Magazine where he talked about how he didn't enjoy reading the New York Times anymore. He liked to just read more conservative media. Um, I've seen Breyer right. at more liberal dinner parties. And, you know, there's a, a part of me that just doesn't buy it, that doesn't buy the court as as unpredictable and removed as the mythology holds. Okay, so let me say that there's more than one court to begin with. So there's the court that is deciding the 60 cases here you don't pay any attention to. They're actually really important cases. And in that, the court functions, you know, civil procedure, trademark law, um, patent, uh, bankruptcy, ERISA cases, I can tell you are already being thrilled by this list. <laughs> Those are cases where I think everything I just said is true. I don't think the court is political. I think there's a strong effort by you know, nine lawyers to try to figure out what is going to work best within this system. And I buy it for, for that. I think it is a a good, you know, appellate court <laughs> when it comes to that kind of thing. So there's this kind of part of law, which is, I don't know if it's completely objective, let's say slightly more neutral. And I think the court is everything it's supposed to be when it comes to those cases. Then you have the political cases. And the political cases, even when you work on them, they feel different. Let's say, in a, I worked on an abortion case, partial birth abortion case. It was just immediately clear we were no longer in the realm of law. And it was, as you describe it, intrinsically political. Now, you had a few of the justices who had migrated at the time, like Justice Souter had, was a Republican, but had somehow migrated. But everyone knew that there were sort of two parties, and then there was a few moderates, and that was it. And I think that's the court you probably are referring to. And, you know, is that unpredictable? Not that much. I'll say one thing about them maybe differently than, a, like, say, Congress. Congress to my mind, has very little nose for the consequences of what it does. It just throws stuff out there. The court does have these moments where it feels it has institutional duties to the United States of America. I won't say that's always going to um, control what they do, but you look at, for example, Chief Justice Roberts in the Affordable Care Act case. It was just, in a sense drawing on that deeper feeling of responsibility for the nation state that they occasionally have. And I think if there's any mystique in the political cases, it is there. I don't think someone like Scalia had that. I think he was willing to throw bombs. It's part of why I think Sandra Day O'Connor, for example, or other people always push to the middle because there is this sort of, well, what's good for the country question that does come up and I think does limit the court from its most outlandish or outrageous undertakings. While there were cases that were legitimate and sort of legal cases, there were some that were politics. And there were clerks who were soldiers on both sides who were there. And I just started to um, believe that uh, it was a political contest. These big cases were 
political contests. I mean, I sort of come to where you were of not buying it. And the people in the middle were roadkill and were getting squashed. It wasn't always true. There was some room with Sandra Day O'Connor, but the influence, I noticed, was on the far sides. And it was a take-no-prisoners game for some of these big cases. And either you won or you lost. And I think that changed me. I think I had more of the almost um, self-flattering position that many people have, where it's like, oh, I'll just stay in the middle and be a fair arbiter of all that comes. I didn't think of myself as political. I think at the court, I thought, well, you know, you kind of have to choose sides sometimes and decide what you believe in. The idea of, oh, I'm just sort of impartial for everything is a luxury that can't be sustained. I also found myself very repulsed by the right-wing views that I came across there. I had sort of maybe been more apolitical, but the callousness with which, for example, death penalties were treated bothered me. You know, he had Justice Thomas and his automatic vote to on every case that we should execute. And I was like, that's kind of a little thoughtless. I mean, this is someone's life. Uh, the execution cases really got to me. The, the whole vision that there was this guy sitting, usually guy, sitting there, you know, about to be injected. And you can kind of see them. Sometimes I'd have to wake up in the middle of the night and imagine the person uh, being executed at that moment. And that kind of had an influence. I was like, what are we doing this for? It's too crazy. And so I, I don't know. It, you can't be around that stuff and not, I think, have a political reaction unless you were completely dead. So that my apolitical side began to die a death working at the Supreme Court. What did you do after the court? So I bid farewell. At time, law firms were starting to offer these large bonuses to anyone who would join. And um, I think it was it was hard to turn that, that money, but I decided it was time to go to Silicon Valley. Actually, it was hard to make the decision. And so one day I was having drinks with friends and then having had enough drinks, I spontaneously called and accepted the job at a, at a mid-sized startup in Silicon Valley that was selling uh, tech equipment and just went for it. What did they need you uh, for? I worked there. They just thought, well, this guy looks smart. Let's throw him into marketing. (laughs) So (laughs) put the legal career on on hold there and uh, was in product marketing, did some advertising as well. Wait, something is Um, being lost in this story. Um, I don't believe that you went from the Supreme Court to some mid-sized startup that sells tech equipment. What what excited you about them? What what was what was the lure? What was a company Uh, for that matter? They were up up and coming. Their name was Riverstone Networks. They were up and coming company. They were kind of like a Cisco competitor. They were going to go public in the near future. You have to turn the dial back to 1999 and remember there was this thing called a dot com boom, and it was. Silicon Valley. I mean, Silicon Valley still kind of seems exciting and fantastic and who knows what will happen. And I thought, I don't know, let's go for it. The other options were all to work at law firms. I did meet some people out there uh, who were starting to talk about this company named Google, but the distance between me and them. uh, I met Ann Wyszynski a few times there. We may have indeed gone on a date and she was talking, oh, this company Google is really interesting. Uh, I guess she was on hiatus from uh, Sergey Brin at the time. So I heard about them, but I was like, oh, that sounds like a cool thing. But, you know, I didn't know really anyone then. So I guess a smarter version of me would have gone to work for Google. But no, I went to work for this firm, 
which did end up being a loser, I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> it um, had its moment. We went public, and the stock went up for a while, and it was all tremendously exciting. I guess what I really learned about that place, among others, is the number of ways you can commit accounting fraud. <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't do it myself, but the longer I was there, the more I started to become suspicious and I think a lot of us did. Maybe it was our accountants, Arthur Anderson, who no longer exist. You know, I overheard them saying, what are they calling revenue around here? Maybe it was the idea that whenever our stock was in trouble, we would call up Morgan Stanley and be like, hey, we need you to up the stock. And I was like, are we allowed to do that? They underwrote our IPO. So I guess part of the deal was in exchange for underwriting the IPO. They would, they would bounce the stock up. Wow. Once in a while, which seemed to me like I seem to remember in law school, I'd read something about there's supposed to be a wall between research and and then, you know, the the taking money part. It's actually I was when I was that I was like, why do. Oh, so this is why banks have put together the, you know, research arms and the arms that taken money so that they can make a deal. I, I mean, it seemed like that to me at the time, like, why would they be together in the same company other than so that you can do their underwriting on the promise that they'll up your stock when the time comes, or at least it seemed that way to me. And that's what we uh, did now and then. I wouldn't say we did it every day. And you know, at the end of the quarter, there would be enormous piles of equipment and boxes to be shipped off. Who knows where? Maybe they're buried in the desert somewhere. So <laughs> that was every, everybody was doing it was the idea. I had a poker game with other people in Silicon Valley and we'd compare notes and uh, it just seemed to be you know, stuffing the channels, as they call it, <laughs> seemed to be the way you did business. It actually was an eye-opening, sorry to go on on this so long, but it kind of changed my thinking about the market and private industry. Because I think in law school, this was the height of the 90s and like government doesn't have the answers and trust the market and the end era of government is over. And I worked in government and, you know, the Supreme Court, I don't know, it was perfect, but it was relatively public-minded. I don't think you know, the justices were on the take or anything like that. And I went to the private industry. Now, you know, this was maybe a bad sample. This was WorldCom Enron era. But these guys didn't seem to possess any particular wisdom or any special insight into their industry even. They just were all about um, convincing people to buy a stock, move it up, and then dump it. And I was like, wow, what is going on here? So it really changed my thinking. I actually think I changed my politics, both at the Supreme Court and in Silicon Valley to become just more, much more suspicious of private actors. It seems like in moments like this, the thing you're actually willing to do is not get trapped by your previous path, right? Which is actually yes. something I really respect. It takes a certain kind of courage to clerk on the Supreme Court and then go to a job that doesn't use those skills, doesn't really build on that prestige. And that takes you off of what at that point probably seems like a pretty gilded path. Maybe this is getting back to what if Larry saw, if anything. I like to think I am brave and courageous. I mean, I get a little nervous. But I have sometimes had the wherewithal to do things that look a little unanchored <laughs> and um, just kind of hope it will work. And I'll, I'll say that going to Silicon Valley after being on Supreme Court was probably the strongest example. I went from this 
marble and bronze and oak palace. It was a joy to stroll into that building every day into a world of office parks and cubicles and employees who were all wearing the corporate, not t-shirt, but the button down. And it was an aesthetically depressing environment. My salary was low. Supposedly, we we're going to make money in options. So there was a, a lot of money I did I left on the table that was uh, challenging at the time. And, uh, you know, Silicon Valley is uh, not a glamorous place. I'm not saying D.C. necessarily is the most glamorous, but we had a kind of exciting life. And I mean, I was in my mid-20s. There were women in D.C., Silicon Valley. There were not. <laughs> At that point, I think our one, company had one woman working there. She was secretary, and she uh, left and filed for sexual harassment. Oh, so that was it. <laughs> you know, and so it was this kind of very engineering, male, cheap carpets, depressing office parks. It was just uh, astonishingly a downer. And um, yeah, but it was a good experience. I guess if you want to see things, I think I wanted to see it. I thought, you know, maybe eventually I'd, who knows, do what in life, but I wanted to be there and see what was this thing, Silicon Valley? What was it like? I don't like secondhand knowledge. I want to feel the fire directly and drink from the source. And that was that. And it couldn't have been more heart of tech than that. And so then what happened? What came next? Well, the writing was on the wall. I started reading this website called Fucked Company, which was detailing the throes of the companies dying in Silicon Valley. I mean, this was depressing. And I remember we used to joke, be like, oh, it's like the Ice Age. And I don't think we're one of the mammals. <laughs> I think like it's coming and everyone's dying. Let's get out of here. The company did go public and made a small amount of money, but nothing, no great fortune. And, um, you know, the lawsuit started coming. I thought I got to get out of here. So I applied to be an academic back in legal academia, <laughs> trading off the idea that I you know, knew something about uh, Silicon Valley. And I managed to get a job. And so that, uh, that I then moved to Charlottesville, Virginia for a new chapter at the University of Virginia. I want to merge some things that I, I know come you know, sure. sort of next for you. Which is, you, you become at some point very associated with this idea of net neutrality, but you also write a book that that I both really love and that I think is very relevant to this era called the Master Switch. Mm -hmm. And the Master Switch is about, uh, and and you should certainly uh, correct the ways in which I get this wrong, but the Master Switch is about what happens when crucial communication and informational mediums and technologies are controlled by monopolists or um, other kinds of interested, powerful actors and used in part for their own purposes. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, one aspiration of that book is to say, well, what happens after the invention? You know, you've read books about the invention of the telephone, TV and the radio and so on. Like, okay, well, then what happens and who ends up in control who gets their hand on the master switch? That was the goal of that book. And I thought it, well, the goal of it was really to make a little clearer to people the role that economic power plays in our communications environment, in our culture, in our, in our lives. 
something which I, again, going back to Silicon Valley, felt that people were sort of blissfully unaware of or determined to say was irrelevant. In the 90s and 2000s, they're like, oh, no, we've broken all the rules. There's never going to be a monopolist ever again or a powerful company. Everyone who gets power is, is going to be upended five uh, years later, so you don't have to worry about anything. And I was like, I don't know if that's going to be right. Well, I released in 2010. I did a lot of the writing 2007, 2008. And I was saying, I don't know. I think the web, some of these companies, Google, Facebook, I think they're kind of a little entrenched. I think they're in a good shape and they will become more and more powerful as opposed to being you know, knocked off the perch. And everyone said, you've got to be kidding me. You've, you know, that's, that's not going to happen at all. But I think we are in a period, not only in the web, but a lot of places where market power and I'm trying to say I was right. <laughs> well, I think, I think, I think in this yeah. way you clearly were right. But the part yeah. of the book that I wanted to focus in on here is the book is one of the more interesting analyses that I've read of how monopolists or near monopolists can and do act within new technologies and particularly technologies where the boundaries of the technology and the rhythm of it are confusing and uncertain in ways it actually isn't clear at a given moment if someone is a monopolist. There's mm-hmm. always this argument. Google clearly has a monopoly over search, but is search the right market to think of Google in right. or is Google in competition with Facebook, in which case they're not a monopolist. There's real competition there. And one reason I wanted to focus on this with you is it's something that I am noticing happening is that questions of monopolies and the power of entrenched economic companies are becoming pretty central, particularly to to a segment of the left. I've been hearing this with Robert Reich, seeing it with Elizabeth Warren, Matt Stoller, wrote a big piece in The Atlantic on this recently. And I'm, I'm curious how you think of monopolies in the economy in this era? Is this something that should be central to people's understanding? Is this something that is a little bit more of a specific problem in certain industries? How would you urge people to think about the the question of monopolies right now? Oh, I would urge them to go back to the progressive era, that means 1910s, and realize that we're in a very similar state of, uh, of affairs where the level of concentrations are at historic high levels and that's married with historically high profits. So I think the right way to think about this is to understand that you know we have allowed the economy to become concentrated to a degree we haven't seen since the early 20th century and to understand the interest in doing something about it, whether you use the word monopoly or not, as very natural reaction to economic power in our times. People wonder why, for example, there hasn't been wage growth. Well, one thing you can say is, well, people aren't worth it. Or you could say, well, maybe because many of the markets are so consolidated, they don't feel any need to pay anybody anymore because there's not that many employers who are competing hard enough for, with higher wages. So no, I think it is the time to be concerned about uh, this issue. Give me a number here, just real quick. How do we measure concentration? When you say the economy's not been this concentrated since 1910, what's the measurement we're using? Right. Well, I don't know how technical you want to, to go, but Extremely I mean... Extremely fucking technical. Okay, so you would <laughs> use the HHI. <laughs> do you know about HHI measurements? Uh, no. So the HHI is a measurement of market concentration. and uh, What does it, it stand for? It, st- it stands for the Herfindel-Hirschman Index. Catchy. Yeah. 
<laughs> Look, it's a big hit in the antitrust uh, world. <laughs> so uh, all you do is you define an, uh, an industry. HHI is just a handy tool, you know, like any um, statistic can be useful if it's not completely perfect. You, you draw a line, you say, this is an industry. These are all the companies that compete in this industry or this market. And you figure out how large they are. And the way the index it works, since you're interested, is you sum the squares of their market share. And that leads you at a number. And then you compare this to this index. And uh, we, we have, in the antitrust world, ideas for you know what counts as a highly concentrated industry, what is a medium concentrated industry. And, and one of the things that's happened over the years is the HHI numbers in a whole bunch of areas have just gotten higher and higher and higher. And it's almost like, I don't know, like global warming. You can just look out and be like, okay, the economy is now more concentrated. What it means is just that for any given thing, let's say beer, good example. So people may not realize this, but in beer right now, domestically, there are just two companies that sell about 75% of the beer in the United States. Molson Coors and um, Anheuser-Busch slash InBev, both owned by foreign companies. So that's an example of an industry that used to have like, say, five or six actors and now has two. And, you know, if you look at airlines, it's kind of the same story. And so you go industry by industry, you count how many big players there are. It's not that hard. And the numbers are just different. They're just more concentrated. So if I can say one thing that's different between now and, and 100 years ago, 100 years ago, you tended to have one big fat trust. And this is kind of a problem for antitrust law, as I'll explain in a second. You had one trust, like the Steel Trust, the Sugar Trust, AT&T, one company controlling everything. And so we wrote the antitrust law as a deal with that problem. Today, we usually have something more like, oh, the big two, the big three, the big four. Airlines, for example, Delta, American, United. They control X percent of the industry. Antitrust is less good at dealing with that situation, I'll tell you that. Visa, MasterCard, two companies, maybe American Express. And that is one of the reasons antitrust law has not been so great at, at uh, controlling conduct by those kind of firms. I feel that people's intuitions on whether a merger should go through or whether antitrust should be activated are typically connected to their sentiments about the companies that are being discussed. So yeah. Comcast is a company that has reasonably low consumer approval ratings, I think it's fair to say. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> reasonably they, low consumer ratings. That's a very, it's the biggest euphemism Comcast I've ever heard. Comcast is a, a, an people, investor people in Vox fucking Media. Hate them. <laughs> so, oh, okay. I so, uh, you oh, know, I'm sorry. Want to be gentle here? Um, okay. But, sorry um, about that. A, you know, a minority investor in Vox Media. But well, you know, why don't you use uh, right? Maybe uh, you could use. Uh, yeah, I guess that's the best example. I was thinking of T-Mobile, but, but look, people do not like Comcast. Yeah. I'm not trying okay. to beat around the bush on it. That's precisely what I'm right. saying. And so, you know, when it comes up that they want to do a major merger, I think there's a lot of intuition that, hey, I not only don't like Comcast, but I also don't like the cable companies in general, right? It's not like Comcast's right. uh, competitors are beloved either. And so, fuck that, no merger. On the other hand, you right. have something like Google, which is a company that people really do like, but is also extremely, extremely powerful. And in its market, is probably more powerful even than, than Comcast is in its market, because I think search should actually be defined as a market. But people's intuitions there is, no, 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 Google's like a, they're a good company. They, they pay people a lot of money. They're using their profits to try to invent like driverless cars and like internet and space mm -hmm. and, and all this stuff. 
And so I, I think that's a question I have for you here. How much are the arguments around monopolies and antitrust arguments about companies versus how much are they arguments about the ideal functionings of markets and the ideal size of major players and markets that should be applied irrespective of companies and how we feel about them? You know, you have put your finger, and this is extraordinary for you know a somewhat outsider, on the central question that has obsessed antitrust for the last hundred years. Oh, Tim, you and flatter. And it is essentially, no, it is. It is essentially a battle between the economists and the lawyers. <laughs> the economists and the lawyers who love them do believe that we should have no sense of right or wrong. It is just about economic performance. The champion of this view was Robert Bork in his famous book, The Antitrust Paradox. And his basic argument is that a lot of what looks like evil or malicious conduct, the so-called bad guys, might be very economically efficient and therefore good for the economy so that antitrust lawyers should completely get out of the business of calling good or evil out of the business of looking for malicious intent, trying to find the bad guy in the top hat, pulling the levers behind the scenes. The opposite tradition I would associate with Louis Brandeis, who took the antitrust law as not merely an economic tool, although it was that, but a promotion of certain values that he thought were essential to the American Republic. Decentralization, a certain kind of virtue in business. I'm obsessed with Brandeis, and he was a proponent in business of the idea that business could be a profession and pursued in a virtuous way. He also thought that the whole goal of the American Republic was to inculcate virtue and good character in people. That was why we had the First Amendment and why we moved to Republican government. And so that is the question. And it you know, kind of manifests in, like, let's say a merger like AT&T with Time Warner. How do you decide that kind of thing? Is it just about the raw numbers and whether prices might go up on the margins for customers? Or is there a deeper concern, A, as to whether you think this company is predatory, bent on domination, a sort of standard oil of its time, run by a ruthless monopolist who has no interest in the lives of his employees or the public at large? Or are you concerned about the evil tactics that might be involved? Those, those are the questions that consume antitrust right now. I would have to say that on the law, in the doctrine, Bork has won. You know, if you are were to hang out at a uh, FTC meeting or, or Justice Department, I also work there, by the way, at the FTC, a merger review meeting, you wouldn't have a lot of people saying, oh, this is an evil company and they need to be stopped. You'd have the presentation of a lot of numbers and arguments about potential effects of the merger. But that being said, I think that the track record, when you get down to it, you know, it's the lawyers who finally make the call. And I think they have 
intuitions that shade their views. There is a reason that maybe Google has gotten a pass, as you suggest, and a reason that Comcast and AT&T, widely seen as, let's just say, companies that people are not fond of, have had uh, the egg thrown in their face. That, that's a kind of a lengthy answer, but uh, again, you have put your finger on the central dilemma in antitrust. But, but what do you think? Oh, what do I think? And, and in part, the reason I'm asking this is that part of my job is that I try to track sort of emergent arguments in, in, in politics. And, and this is an emergent yeah. argument in a, in a very big way. And one that I don't fully feel like I understand the contours of. And so yeah. when you think about this, when you say, yes, I think people should be very concerned about this as a central part of their politics, as a part of their political identity, as a part of their search for justice. Are you saying yeah. that the central demand of this movement should be that in a just completely rules-based way, no market can have three players who account for more than, I'm just making numbers up, obviously, 65% of the economic mm -hmm. activity in that market. And when they, when that happens, there's like something triggers. Like I remember there being a lot of anger about Walmart. Now Walmart is obviously right. under real threat from Amazon. But part of the reason right. liberals are more willing to think about antitrust issues with Walmart was because they don't like Walmart. They think that Walmart in some ways right. is, is bad. When you say this should be an important part of people's politics, which one of those theories are you saying should be theirs? Okay. So it won't surprise you to think that I am on the side of Brandeis and I don't agree with Robert Bork. And let me explain it though. I, I mean, my views are, are nuanced in this area. I don't believe in something like you suggested, you have a flat rule that, you know, an industry reaches 65% concentration and automatically uh, is broken up. Although I should tell you that that was a bill in Congress and that there was a series of economists in the 50s who believe that you should have automatic tripwires that immediately at the moment, let's say three firms hit 70%, they would automatically be broken up. <laughs> the deconcentration it was called no-fault deconcentration, if you're interested in it. And they just thought that was, that was the answer. But I, I think that is a, a fairly crude device. But listen, what I think is that antitrust and private power have such an effect on our day-to-day -day lives. It's a, a matter too important to be left to the economists and left to the raw numbers that the influence on who we are as a people and what we are as a country of the concentration of companies, in, especially in sensitive sectors like the media, is too much to just think that we can uh, run some math and, and get the right answers because it has such an effect on how we live our day-to-day -day life. The founders were concerned about concentrated power in all aspects. They didn't have concentrated private power. So I think you have to have an eye on that exact question. And I think the character of the firm does matter when it comes to something like monopoly enforcement. So one of the questions when you go into a big monopoly case and you're thinking about breaking up a company, I do think, I'll say for the record, we should do more breakups, that they have um, sometimes incredibly salutary effects. I mean, the company doesn't like it, but <laughs> we're not talking about a person. <laughs> Look, we should never forget, we're not talking about a person here. We're not dismembering a, an individual. That would be immoral. You know, we're dismembering, let's say, the AT&T Corporation. People forget, but some of these dismemberments led to some of the most incredible economic growth and innovation in the history of the United States. 
whether it's AT&T, whether it's Standard Oil, whether it's the Alcoa Aluminum Company. There were moments where big breakups had really important consequences for this, this country. So I don't think we should be afraid to pull the trigger on the breakup. But when you're trying to figure out whether to do it or not, you have to have a mixture of economic and, I don't want to say political, but I want to say at least moral or virtue-driven sense of whether this, what this company is doing for us, a political sense, really, of what this company is making us into as a, as a country. What are some companies, when you say that we should be more open to breakups, what, what are some companies that you think that if we broke them up, we would have more innovation, more competition, more growth? You know, you might be surprised. I'll give you my criteria. What you need to look for is a monopolist that has been in charge of an industry for a very long time with, you know, no signs of competition. So essentially we're talking about stagnant industries. I'm less excited about breaking up a company that's on the growth, that's still just got there. They're doing things. You know, Google, when we investigated them in 2010, 2011, they were, you know, still on the make. It wasn't clear what they were going to do, innovating wildly. I think it's someone who's been there for a very long time. You know, at this point, for example, although they've kind of become more benign, you think about Microsoft and the monopoly it's had for so long over operating systems and office, they should have broken them up in, in 2000. It would have been better, frankly, for the company. And it's a little late now to come back and break them up, but that maybe is something you could do. I think the airline industry, we might consider retroactively breaking up parts of it. We we allowed that to happen. You know, let's say American Airlines and U.S. Airways, and the effects have been so pernicious for customers. The profits are through the roof that it was clearly an error. So occasionally I think we should be willing to look back and be like, well, we blew that. It's gotten worse for everybody, Let's, uh, except for, you know, they have more profit, except for their shareholders. So maybe that's one to look back at. There's been a long story of um, hospital mergers. They're not famous hospitals where the price of care after the merger goes up and the amount of um, the mortality rates also go up. So more people die and they cost more. And those mergers are just like, were a mistake. And I think... Some of the hospitals, when you have one, like one dominant hospital in a city should be broken up. So I don't know. I mean, that's a pretty big agenda of breakups. But I, I think we should not be afraid to use that power when it's called for. Let me ask a question about the tripwire approach versus the more nuanced, impressionistic judgment on the company's approach. My concern about that is twofold. I tend in general in politics and policy because I don't have that much faith in the system to be a fan of sort of dumb rules in part because I think that it just creates clarity. And I genuinely don't know enough about this area to know that we should do that here. But but the reason I ask about it is twofold. One is that first, it feels like this is a bit of an invitation for a kind of crony capitalism. If what you're saying is that these decisions are made based on the sentiments particularly of the political class in practice – towards these companies, well, then that really is a great reason for the biggest companies to invest dramatically in lobbying. I don't want to suggest I'm actually not, I have not thought about breaking Google up and I'm not advocating it, but they've become mm-hmm. the one of the biggest, if not the biggest lobbyist in Washington, lobbying company in Washington. Very, very, very good at it. 
if large companies knew that losing the faith of regulators and members of Congress and members of the administration could impose them to more antitrust scrutiny in an era when we were doing more antitrust scrutiny, that seems like a, a somewhat dangerous mixture for a pretty cronyistic form of capitalism. The other side of it, I think you, you see it with Trump. He does seem very interested in using antitrust, but not because he seems to have real concerns about about competition in industries. He wants to maybe break up Amazon because he's mad at the Washington Post. He, you know, there's right. a there's a sort of antitrust as a method of punishment and as a method of hurting your enemies that that is a little bit scary here. And and I think both of these are in, in some ways the same thing that if Companies have this much to fear from the government. Large companies have this much to fear from the government, both from the government, from members of the government just not liking them for non-personal reasons and from members of the government not liking them for personal reasons, right? Because too many mm -hmm. of their employees say support the other candidate or whatever it might be. I could really imagine that taking us further down the path towards a kind of crony capitalism where in order to survive and in order to prosper, it is an existential need for these companies to invest very, very heavily in winning over Washington and also doing in some ways Washington's bidding. And I worry that would have a negative effect. Yeah. I mean, and frankly, so those are some of the arguments that Bork made. And I well, I've always thought of myself, as you know, Tim, as a Borkian. <laughs> Although Justice Stevens made it a different, a different way. I'll repeat some of the argument. He had this phrase, Justice Stevens once said, um, you know, antitrust is a little bit like the law of the West. Sometimes Sheriff uh, feels he should go out and pistol whip a few bad guys. That's what That's he said. That, that's how he said antitrust. I know. He had this great line about it. So I also share with you the, a belief in the rule of law. Let's just put it that way. I mean, what you're describing is the rule of law as opposed to the rule of political whims and enemies lists. And I guess the question is how far you've, you're erring, right? So I guess what I'm not trying to say is that politicians should sit around and be like, oh, you know, my phone bill was pretty outrageous last week. Let's um, go break up AT&T or something. I, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just suggesting the balance has gone too far into a purely economic driven what are the numbers kind of story as opposed to a broader consideration of all factors. I'm certainly by no means advocating a completely discretion driven law of man, I hate my enemies, I'm going to break up that company because it's owned by some dude I hate, a kind of law because that is no law at all. All I'm saying is we have gone too far towards it all just being the numbers. And even the tripwire approach that you suggest, which would automatically, let's say, break up firms and they hit some percentages, is completely insensitive to, you know, whether that would be good. So all I'm trying to say is it does require judgment calls and we shouldn't pretend you're not making judgment calls here, but I'm not saying they should be made on the basis of animus or I hate Walmart or something. I mean, one of the reasons to, to give the antitrust enforcers credit that they haven't gone after Amazon is even though everyone says, uh, oh, you know, Amazon's so big and they're, they're dominating everything, antitrust attorneys look at it and say, well, they have lowered prices and the goal of the antitrust law is lowering prices. And so how can we, with a straight face, break them up if they have accomplished the main goal of this law, or one of the main goals of this law, which is to keep prices low for customers. To put it down, I'm thinking it calls for judgment. 
And I hear what you're saying. I mean, at some point in any system of government, there's no replacement for having some faith in the judgment of the people involved. And I don't think you can entirely walk away from that. Yeah, it's a huge problem. I agree. (laughs) This is, I think, a good point to move on to your new book, which is very, very close to my heart. And we actually talked about it, I think, long before you had actually begun writing it. I give you some credit. In fact, I want to give you some credit for um, steering me in this uh, direction. I remember I'd discussed two books, uh, and uh, you said you should write the one about attention and advertising. You never know what might come out of that. And so I ignored that for a while, and then thought about the other book, uh, pitched it. My agent said, oh, I don't know if that book works that well. So then I uh, ended up writing this book, and so there you go. Well, you're welcome. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the thing that I'm so fascinated by in this book, and I, I really, really enjoyed it in Attention Merchants, a couple of years ago, and actually I think this partially came out of reading The Master Switch, I began thinking about how all of our informational commons have been, virtually all, with the actual exception of books, have been structured on the business side to run off of advertising. And this mm-hmm. is true for magazines, it's true for newspapers, it's true for Google, it's true for Facebook, it's true for television, it's true for radio, virtually all of the ways in which we absorb information. Again, books being really the one major exception. And now maybe the other major exception is the film. Yeah, I was thinking I was thinking here about news information, but you're totally right. right Okay, news. Yeah, you're right. Uh And 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 it made me wonder what would all of this look like if it hadn't had to have as a core component of it, this is a good vehicle and vessel for advertisements. Yeah. I think we always think of this stuff as sort of the news and the information first and the advertisement second. But given that it literally couldn't survive without the advertisements, it's all ended up in a form that had to be useful and viable for advertisers. And so I guess my big question for for you having done this book is what do you think we've lost that we would have had if a different business model had dominated? Or do you think it was even do you think it was even possible for a different business model to dominate? It's very interesting to wonder what the world looks like as you said as a thought experiment if this business model selling eyeballs the attention merchants hadn't been developed in the 1830s and never took off. So in the book, there's this one guy in the tabloid New York press in the 1830s, founder of New York Sun, Benjamin Day, who who has this idea. So, and, and you know, and he makes it work. And because he makes it work, it goes from this, he said, very obscure part of the economy, uh, tabloid news, to sort of more mainstream news, to support radio, to support television. And we're, all, we're talking about news here, too ultimately support almost all the main web models, maybe Wikipedia being the exception. So, And that's our reality. So the business model encourages or calls for enormous parts of the population to be paying attention to the same thing at the same time, and therefore there being something that we call a public with public opinion. <laughs> you know, this idea that more or less... Everyone in the country is following a story. Maybe it's like the O.J. Simpson trial. Maybe it's the ongoing drama of the uh, Trump reality show slash presidency. Whether it's, you know, 
earlier phases, the uh, struggle of FDR to deal with the Depression. Just all of us watching this story together is, I believe, something that this business model does a lot to create. This idea of a mass media of public opinion at all has a lot to do with this business model. And the reason that is, is what you see if you're only on a paid business model, and there's a lot of attractive things about this, as we'll see as well, but you have to deliver information that is of very strong relevance to people in a very obvious way. So the newspapers before advertising had financial news. They're sort of like Bloomberg, or they have very relevant political news for people who it's going to matter to. They're more like newsletters. And we were talking about news and not entertainment, but the entertainment products are, I guess, more produced. They're more like films, as opposed to what you can get away with an advertising-supported medium, but also where you have to aim, which is to a much broader audience. So I think you have a much more nicheified world without the rise of the attention merchants. And in some ways, we've gone back to those niches, oddly enough, in our current time. But I think that's the the big story, if that uh, makes any sense. I I think that's fascinating. And it it does make sense to me. Although, as you say, as this has all become more competitive, we have become much more fractured. Right. So that that, that Um, period you're talking about, that period of mass media, I think people tend to think of as sort of a 20th century thing. And it might have been a little bit before that too, but that has really been in in erosion for a long time. And it's not something I see people pushing against. It's not something I see. I I do see advertisers. I mean, we we experience this all the time at Vox who are trying to attain scale, who are trying to get, as you say, enough people to focus in on one campaign. But it, it, Mm -hmm. it hasn't seemed that what they, I guess maybe what I would say here is that it hasn't seemed to me that what they need for that is for everybody to be following the same story, but to be in the same places. It's why the platforms like Google and and particularly for this kind of thing, I think Facebook have become so mm-hmm. valuable because it doesn't matter what people are looking at. They're looking at it on Google and Facebook. Where at another point, if everybody's interested in something different, they might all be in a different place. Yes, there is uh, there is accomplished by Google and Facebook the almost miraculous idea of put in the different era. If you imagine, you know, in the 1950s, the name of the game, if you're ABC, NBC, and CBS, is winning that primetime battle, attracting 70 million people to I Love Lucy, as opposed to, I don't know what its competitor was, Gunsmoke. Actually, it wasn't Gunsmoke. That was another CBS show. But like whatever the loser was against I Love Lucy, that was the, the name of the game. The real genius of Google and Facebook as advertising models is it's as if they put an ad on the TV itself, or maybe in Google's case, the remote control. It doesn't really matter what you're watching as long as you're using it to watch it. On Facebook, you're mostly watching yourself or your sort of friends and uh, family. And, you know, they've put an ad on the mirror or on the remote control. So it doesn't matter what the content is. And that allows there to be splintered content, but still a mass audience. And there's something kind of genius about that. Can I back up and say something else on my on the earlier question? I, I wanted to say that I think if you really get interested in this question of what the media is like, there's a really big difference between ad-supported and paid media. And the big difference is 
the need for scale or not. Paid products, no matter what you're talking about, shoes or, or media, they just have to make enough money to cover their costs. So there's more potential for reaching a niche and, and making money that way. If you think about Netflix right now, their shows don't have to be big hits. They just have to keep enough people subscribing or paying the monthly fee to make it worth it. The classic ad-based models really work best at massive scale, like TV in the 50s, where you are ideally getting 100 million viewers or so. And that pretty profoundly affects the content you're, you're going for. So I think those are the tendency of those media. They can, they can go in other directions, but those are certainly the natural tendencies of those type of media. One of the things I think is, is fascinating about this argument is the way in which attention is somewhat different than sentiment. That what you need for this kind of business model, and it's not always a business model. I mean, you actually bring up the idea that religion was the original attention merchant. You, you have a, an interesting section on Hitler in here just talking about the way in which he was able to use technology to, to achieve attention. And I think something that is a little tricky here is that people, what you need from them is to keep watching or to, to, to keep right. paying attention. They don't actually need to be happy about it. They just need to be addicted to it. And yeah. one of the things that seems to me to be uh, occurring right now in, in different platforms is that a lot of things are using addiction more than they are using and habit more than they are using sentiment. I open Twitter a couple times a day. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't feel good about <laughs> myself. I don't leave feeling better. But what they have managed to key into with me is something different than I tune in because I like it. It's I tune in because I feel that I'm going to miss something if I don't. In a very different way, I think Donald Trump was a genuine genius at understanding that it was less important if people liked what they were hearing from him than they, they were always hearing from him, right? And he yes. had this kind of like reality stars, I'm not here to make friends approach to particularly the primary, which really worked to, to squeeze out what other people were willing to do. So the Donald Trump brand reached as many folks and was able to get, even if it turned off a lot of people, it was able to get its own critical mass. And that mm -hmm. feels to me to be a transition we're in right now, that I think we used to think that the way to get attention was to create things people liked. And I think mm -hmm. now we're seeing that a way to get detention is to create things people are addicted to that are very habit forming or to just that they can't escape so that they are they are caught up in it whether or not they want to be. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I'd be even more precise. Something that generates a strong emotional reaction, no matter what the reaction, <laughs> whether it's repulsion, whether it's excitement, fear, hatred, anger, whatever it is. That is what you go for. And once having generated that outrage, hope, design a system to that makes people come back because people come back for emotional hits. You know, there's a reason horror movies are popular. And I think you're right that every advertising medium, everyone who's in the contest for attention, who is winning, is all about the game of the neuroscience of emotional hits. And frankly, adding to it, they don't even have to be consistent. It doesn't always have to be a hit. It just there has to be the possibility. Things can be even more addictive when the hits are unpredictable. This is the lesson from gambling casinos or, or frankly, 
sports like fishing, but also of, of some of the science is that you can be trained kind of like a pigeon to want the hits more when their reward schedule is inconsistent. So the big thing, and, and you've grasped this from the book, is that often what we think of as a contest, you know, like between two businesses or between two candidates, is there is a prior contest for getting attention at all. And the ways of winning that contest are not ones we always recognize, but are, as you say, things like just being attention gaining and somehow by all means necessary. I mean, the, this has been known for some time, the whole there is no such thing as bad publicity idea is this, that uh, you just have to win that prior fight for attention. I can say one last thing prompted by what you said. If you want to understand the history of attention harvesting and capture, it is, as you suggested, the history of our habits and rituals. Twitter being a good example. The origin of this idea of needing to check in to things, whether Facebook, Twitter, mm -hmm. you know, what just coming back is is a big thing. The invention of prime time, the idea that you watch TV or listen to the radio every day at night is a massive event in the history of attention capture. And just to finish on Hitler, so Hitler didn't really have addictive content. He was a very powerful speaker, but because he didn't have, you know, he didn't couldn't guarantee that everyone just wanted to tune in to listen to him, he forced people by law to sort of attend Nazi prime time they would round people up, uh, this sort of uh, group of radio wardens would round people into rooms, force them to listen to him. And I guess after a while, they they would start doing it voluntarily. So even Hitler understood the necessity of getting and reaching your audience consistently, you know, every week or so. Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting way to put it. One of the fascinating parts of your book is a way in which techniques created and tested out by attention merchants moved over to other spaces and other kinds of practices. And and I think my favorite anecdote is you have this story about Marshall McLuhan going to meet with Timothy Leary and trying to help Timothy Leary come up with a, an advertising jingle for, for acid. And he says, um, lysergic acid hits the spot, 40 billion neurons, that's a lot. And there's something so... There's something so ridiculous about uh, about it, but also I think a little bit profound that what the the work of the attention merchant is is trying to understand how people's brains really work, how they absorb information, how they remember information, how they change sentiment about things, and those skills are, are very transferable. I mean, something that's been happening within my industry for, for the last couple of years, and it's a big part of how Vox Media runs its business, is that. You know, it used to be that what a uh, news publication was basically selling was a monopoly on its audience's attention. You were the LA mm -hmm. Times and you were the only major paper in that area or you were the the Baltimore Sun. And, you, you know, if you wanted to advertise to people in Baltimore, you put an ad in the Baltimore Sun. And now because digitally it's so competitive and the audience isn't in any one place or at least any one publication – you know, what we're really selling is our skill as attention merchants, right? We have Vox Creative and you can go to Vox Creative and they will make ads for you based on what we have learned at Vox.com, at The Verge, at, at Eater, at Racked, et cetera. So in, in some ways, I feel like it's become more of that business. And, and that's a pretty different business, actually, right? Selling your skills as an attention merchant versus selling the audience that you have developed as an attention merchant. And it's not that we don't do a bit of both, but but the the 
weight of it is shifting is a change that I'm not sure people have quite grokked yet. Yes, it's a very perceptive change. I, I uh, you know, the great example of that was uh, BuzzFeed's move to what's sometimes called native advertising. I, yeah, that's I don't what think I'm people have here got too, that. I say. Yeah, where BuzzFeed was like, oh yeah, we've got. Uh, 10 things you didn't know about the Toyota Prius or something like that. You know, like that, well, we have learned these skills. We know the art and science of getting people to click on stuff. So come to us. We are all, in that sense, you know, also you're better than your ad agency. I don't think people have grokked that. I don't know if media organizations themselves fully accept that that's what they're, they're doing. But it's certainly a, a massive transition in what it means to be the the news media or even just the content creator. Business models are changing in this area. I mean, I guess I wrote this book because there is a sense that the old models feel increasingly desperate, that other things are happening. And even advertising itself might not exist in anything like what we know it now, five or 10 years from now. I mean, I think it'll always be something, but it could just become part of what you've just said is you know, there are people become experts at knowing what engages and part of it can become, it's just the story of anything that can influence you in your decisional matters. And that's what we used to call advertising. The other theme of this book, which feels to me, it's funny because I can, I, I, when I read this book, I sort of read it as having, you know, Tim Wu scholar of media and then uh-huh. Tim Wu, human being. And and I actually felt in some ways the threads were different. And that the, the threat of Tim Wu, human being, seemed to be a real concern. That the way that advertising merchants and, and also the underlying platforms had over time become so, so good at this, so competitive, so something, that it was causing real changes in humans. And that our ability to focus on things is diminishing. That our ability to tune out certain kinds of stimuli is diminishing. This is something that I very much feel. I find it's harder for me to sit down and, and read a book because I have this tendency to distract myself all the time. And what, what modern attention merchants have done is make it extraordinarily easy for me to distract myself just for a second. But as you write in the book, when you do that little just for a second distraction, it's never just for a second. It's 25 minutes. It's 35 minutes. Right. And, and I'm yeah. curious how you came out of the book thinking about this. Are you more optimistic about it, less optimistic? Less optimistic. I think more aware, (laughs) more aware of just how much it feels like we live in a kind of a casino, an environment structured to try to pull you away from stuff. Now, uh, you know, pull you away from what you want to be doing (laughs) to something else. Yeah, I think it's extraordinarily hard to stay on task, so to speak, right now. And I guess that concerns me for a number of reasons, most of which I guess I believe in something called autonomy and, you know, the chosen life and, you know, some kind of ideal where you make your own decisions that really feel like yours and that's how you become who you become. And maybe part of it is I just like getting stuff done. I I like the sense of, um, you know, spending an hour and having some byproduct at the end of it. And losing those abilities, especially with technologies that are supposed to make us more productive, you know, with better tools than becoming dulling of our ability to get things done, or even just develop who we want to be as 
as people. That really matters a lot to me as well. I think when, you know, you choose to read a book because you love the author and you deeply engage with it for an hour, that kind of develops you as a person more than when you randomly spend an hour clicking on stuff and you don't really even know why you've done it. You're just responding almost like a reptile to a stimuli. Uh, That to me is a diminution of what it is to be human. Have you set up your life any differently over the course of the last couple of years while you've been thinking about this to try to cut those impulses and rebuild those faculties? Well, I had to get this book written. I had to disable my computer, I feel like, to get the bulk of it out there. Use word processors that are only the page. Find ways to disable the internet for long periods of time. Now, since uh, the beginnings of this book, I've had two children And they've had uh, two daughters, and they have had their own effect. Perversely, they have in some ways made me, seems crazy, but like more productive in the sense that I am forced, first of all, when I'm them, to be completely in human time and not sort of halfway trying to get things done. But also because of the structure they've imposed on, on life, on my life, I find that, you know, where I do have hours, I am more apt to do what I wanted to do. I mean, I'm not kind of, I'm not completely a control freak. I don't believe that there's not some room for wandering and just kind of seeing what happens. But I, I do like that idea of, you know, if you have a few hours in the afternoon and you feel like, oh, I'm going to work on my book. I, I like it when that happens, <laughs> put it that way. And I think having the constant I think being a father in some ways has helped me and that that's restructured my life. I also, just out of sensitivity to these issues, try to somehow be in nature every week and try and at least spend one day a week uh, completely off my computer, uh, ideally two days a week. And I, I think when I keep to those patterns, it's a little bit like when you have a exercise schedule and you notice that you feel better when you keep to it. I've noticed when I keep to this kind of attentional hygiene that my life just seems to work better than when I lose it. So, yeah, I can uh, recommend it. How's that? I think that's a good recommendation. Uh, this is probably a good place to, to wind down. I'm going to ask you two questions we, we try to ask us here at the end. Um, one is, what is the best piece of advice you've received? Ever. Ever. Or at least the one you feel that you want to share right now. Yeah, sure. The thing that comes to mind right now is the idea that that everything you should do should be an end in itself, even if it's also a means. Because even if it turns out, uh, you know, to be a failure, if it doesn't do what you want, if it was an end in itself, you did it for its own reasons, then that has its own uh, sense of satisfaction. I guess it's a little bit, um, for some reason I'm pulling that out of, and this is a religious source. I'm, sort of pulling that out of the New Testament and, and the, the Gospel of Matthew as a source of that advice, the idea of storing your treasures in heaven as opposed to on the earth. And I guess the advice of trying to invest in things that in some ways are indestructible is the best advice I think I've ever received. And you get it from a lot of different spiritual traditions or just people giving it to you. But that idea of looking to store your treasures and that which cannot actually be taken from you is the best advice uh, I can think of right now. So I feel like there are two ways of understanding that kind of advice. And one of them I'm, I'm a little bit allergic to, so I'm, I'd, I'd love to ask you about it. So when I was a writer, and like my only job was putting 
pieces of writing out on the internet, I really feel like uh -huh. I would have vibed to that because, you know, uh -huh. I, I loved the process. I loved reporting. I loved writing. I loved, you know, having the conversation afterwards. Even the parts I didn't like, I loved. You know, I was often tired or felt overworked, but I, I, I never felt a lack of satisfaction in the means. You know, now I'm trying to do this other thing, which is build Vox into, into an institution that, that is hopefully essential to people. And as part of that, I do a lot more things I don't like. There are more mm -hmm. things bricked out on my day. And I, I'm actually lucky to have a fair amount of control. You know, there are a lot of folks who do things they don't like, not because they're building something that ultimately gives them great satisfaction, but because that's what, what they have to do to feed their family or, or, or to survive. So I feel like there's one version of that advice, which is based around really being able to structure a life you like. And then I feel like there's a, a sort of mindfulness version of that advice, which is about being present in the moment and when you're washing dishes, trying to enjoy the feeling of the soapy water on your hands and, and so forth. And I'm, I'm curious how you distinguish those two, because on the one hand, I agree with that advice. On the other hand, it doesn't always feel possible. So I think I'm saying something slightly different than what you're saying, which isn't just like, oh, make sure you only do stuff that you enjoy. Because I think that's not uh, what I'm saying. I, for example, uh, like mountain climbing. And I was thinking the other day that most of mountain you climbing would is like really, mountain climbing. really, yeah, <laughs> really, really not enjoyable. Like there's a lot of moments where... I actually was thinking, like, why the hell do I do this one day? I was thinking, because it, <laughs> it, there are a lot of moments where, like, okay, I would prefer to quit right now, or this hurts. And I think that's, you know, comparable to running a business. I'm not in that advice suggesting that um, only do stuff you find fun. It's not at all what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that how you relate to it, say, building Vox, should be less about whether, you know, ultimately it is as externally successful or not, but whether you think you built something great or not. Mm -hmm. And there may be a lot of pain along the way, but at the end of the day, if you have built something great, and I think you have built something great. So, I mean, I think you've already won. I appreciate if, that. That's if you, very kind you of see, you. see what I mean? I, th I mean, I think you have won. And... I think that's the way to think about life. I think that's very good advice is like this. In, another way could say like, what game are you trying to play? Right. And be careful. You think about, you know, are, are you trying to build, let's say with Vox, are you trying to build the cable news network? Well, maybe you wouldn't necessarily feel so great about that. If even if you did CNN, I mean, I don't know, maybe you would. I think being very careful about what game you're trying to play is really important and doing things you feel proud of. That's very different advice than, oh, you know, do whatever you love. It means doing a lot of things you hate, actually, or find terrible, but where you f think that it is a e worthy end in itself. I mean, maybe this all comes back to sort of almost banal advice as to take action that you feel is motivated authentically by what you think is right or you want to accomplish in life. That's getting more into it. Um, anyway, I try to do that. I Obviously, it's hard to keep to that 100%, but uh, that's that advice. That is good advice. All right. And then the, the last question, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? 
strongly influenced at early stage of my life by the writings of Franz Kafka. <laughs> That's where you get this dark sediment. Okay, I'm going to just choose three novelists who, if people haven't read, I feel that they should. If they like my books, they maybe will enjoy these novelists. So Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety, for some reason that book has just stuck with me for a long time, maybe as about a way uh, life can be. I said earlier, I've always been drawn to the work of, of Franz Kafka. <laughs> maybe explain some of the darkness in some of my books. The Trial was to me the most mesmerizing and oddly hilarious book maybe I ever read. And I'm a, a big fan of uh, Ishiguru. And uh, The Remains of the Day, if you haven't uh, read it, it does dwell on some of these themes we were just talking about as to what makes for a worthwhile life, <laughs> whether the means or the end are important. In fact, it uh, challenges some of what I was saying earlier. So th those are three books that, that come to mind. Remains of the Day is right fantastic. That, that's yeah. a, such a beautiful book. Have you read his um, his newer one, which is a, a fantasy? It's a take on fantasy book, but is also about memory and, and belonging. Oh, yes. The Giant, The Buried Giant. The Buried Giant. Yeah. I, I That was yes. my favorite book of 20, I think it was 2014, 2015. Yeah, the whole, the so whole I, set. <laughs> I'm such an Ishiguro fanatic that... Everything he writes, I read. Yeah, I think he—he's not without his limitations, but he has a certain powerful magic. And even his books, the ones that are like imitations of Kafka, set in Prague, I read those also. I've read every word he's written, I believe, and I don't know what it is, but it's like you know his wavelengths coincide with mine and yeah so Ishiguru I don't know if he's a guide or something but yeah I, I think if you if you some people just it doesn't work for them and I understand that but if it works for you he's getting at stuff that is really really deep Tim Wu thank you very much yeah thanks uh, thanks and it's been uh, a pleasure as they say and I hope to see you again uh, one of these days in the yeah I'd, lo I'd love to see you soon let me know if you're in DC anytime Thank you to Tim. I thought that was great. I hope you all did too. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week.